Tonight we're looking at Genesis 22, and if you've been tracking with us this quarter, um, we've been tracking the life of Abraham, and um, this is what's happening in Genesis 22. Have you ever had this moment in life where everything kind of came together finally, and then something or someone just demonstrated to you like, oh, and now it's actually about to start. In other words, you got over all the obstacles the difficult things, you made a big breakthrough, and then you realize you're just at the beginning of the hard part. Um, Elizabeth and I, most of y'all, everybody knows, we have two sets of twins, and um, that was kind of our experience with our pregnancies, right? We didn't plan either one of our pregnancies. They were surprises. Um, And uh, the first pregnancy we were nervous about, we found out about it, we hadn't planned, it wasn't in our life plan, and we get get the first... um, sonogram, and um, there's that like, all right, we've kind of emotionally come to grips with the fact that we're beginning a family earlier than we started, and then the doctor's like, oh, and by the way, there's two. And then, that wasn't near as overwhelming as roughly, what, 12 months later, after the first ones were born, we come back to the doctor, and he's like, yeah, remember that last time when there was the second heartbeat? Yeah, we got another one of those. And just like all of a sudden in our life, we had that kind of nervous laughter movement where it's not laughter because things are funny, it's laughter because literally you don't know what it's going to do and like this kind of neurotic laughter. But um, that's us. And that's, I think we all encounter those moments where you get to a place where it's all come together and then maybe you find out, oh, actually, it's all just beginning right here. That's what's happening in Genesis 22. Isaac has come. The promised son, the son on whom all of God's promises um, are, are, are coming forward into the story of humanity. And, uh, and this is what happens. Genesis chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar, and Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship, and we will come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, he took it in his hand, the fire and the knife, so they went to the, with both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood in order, and bound up Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar, on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you for your word, and um, we thank you even when it's confusing and when it's hard and when it says things we don't expect. And I pray that we would always engage uh, your word, that you would engage us where you are, that we wouldn't custom build a God that fits into our expectations, but we'd allow you to confront us, to unsettle us, and to challenge us. I pray that you would challenge us tonight and paint a picture of your love and your care for your people that draws us closer to you and gives us a heart for your mission. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, have you all ever had an instance where someone tells you to do the exact opposite of your intuition? Um, I was talking with Miles beforehand. He's a pilot, some of you all know. And uh, we were talking about this, and he said, yeah, what's interesting about flying is if you stall out and go into a nosedive, your instinct in a nosedive is to pull up. But you won't, you won't survive that. And so actually in a nosedive, what they tell us in flying is basically never trust your instincts. In a nosedive, you push down. And you go faster down so that you can create enough airspeed over the wing to then actually pull out of the dive. And it's one of those instances that happens, I think, a lot in life where all of a sudden our intuition is the opposite of actually the correct mode of action. And sometimes... That's the way God is. Sometimes He comes and He speaks into our lives and He says things and tells stories that don't seem to square with anything in the human experience. Like, this just can't be right. And that's what's happening in this passage right here. This is a difficult passage. This is the one of more difficult passages in all of Scripture to kind of square with. Who is this God, right? We thought we weren't worshiping this kind of, or at least considering this kind of archaic um, you know, primitive God that would demand child sacrifice. So how do we handle it? How do we think about it? That's really the question for tonight. And the first point is simply this, is that He's doing, God is doing, what every God in anybody's life always does. And what I mean by that is this. He's demanding a sacrifice. And this episode's unnerving, we know actually later in Deuteronomy 12 and in Deuteronomy 18, child sacrifice is actually condemned in Scripture. It seems cruel and archaic and primitive. Um, it is something that happened in surrounding cultures at this time and other religions. Um, maybe sometimes people read this and they're like, no, 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 that's the barbarity and that's why I don't believe in Christianity. Is because of this God that shows up in passages like this in the Old Testament. Um, it seems arbitrary, right? There's not an explanation. Um, it doesn't seem to square with the rest of the picture of God that we see in Scripture. Why does He do this? And what I want to see is a couple of things at work in this. And the first thing is this. The little, bit of the, the little bit of explanation we have is right there in the first verse. After these things, this is after the ups and downs of Abraham's life, when he's following God, not following God, there are good moments, there are bad moments, um, there are great moments, there are terrible, evil, terribly evil moments. After all these things, this is a, the only explanation we get. God tested Abraham. This is presented as a test. And he's asking Abraham essentially the same thing he asks us every time we encounter the commands of God. And this is what the test is. Every time we encounter, all right, this is what God calls us to, this is the fundamental test. This is actually the question underneath His commands. It's, do you trust me? Here's what I've called you to. Do you trust me? That's the test. The test is, Abraham, do you trust me? The test when, whenever any of us encounter the wisdom or the commands of God and the way He speaks into the ethics of our life, right? 
It's always the subtext is, do you trust me? Obedience, and here's, this, is, this is one of the most important aspects of the Christian faith that I think we probably most often misunderstand is this. Obedience is never an effort issue. It's always a trust issue. Obedience is not a measure of your strength and your determination. It's always a measure of what you think about God. We're prone to think, like we're trying to get our life together and under control, right? We're prone to think that effort is our problem. And the solution is effort. When we're trying to work it out, we're trying to live out the appropriate kind of life. And where all of Scripture, but especially this passage, testifies, it's not an effort problem. It's a trust problem. And this is demonstrated in our lives. When you ask somebody to do a small favor for you, right? When you present them with like, hey, will you do this for me? And they don't do it. Your roommate, whatever it is, clean something up. You never think, they didn't work hard enough for me. You never think that. You never think, this is an effort problem, the fact that they didn't do this for me. What you think is, they don't respect me. Right? It's actually a comment on what they think about you. It's not a comment on their effort level. Obedience... Following commands is not an effort thing, it's a trust thing. It's what you think about God. And God's asking Abraham right here, do you trust me? When my girls were little, this wouldn't be RUF if there weren't illustrations with wood children. Um, When my girls were little and they were afraid to jump off the bed or jump into the pool, to me, to catch them, um, I I would talk to them and I would look them in the eye and I would say, jump to me, you can trust me. Jump to me. You can trust me. And you see their choice to jump, their decision to jump, is a declaration and it's an expression of their trust of their father. It's not an effort thing. It's not, well, they finally got over that effort threshold that finally got them doing the right thing. It was simply a decision to trust their father. The jumping had nothing to do with the amount of effort. And in so doing, right, I always caught them. Every single time. I still do. And you see, the test with my girls is not simply an arbitrary test that doesn't have purpose, right, when I tell them to jump to me. Rather, what I do is I make them act out of their trust of me for the express purpose of reinforcing it, for the express purpose of them actually experiencing my embrace and saying, see, you can always trust me. And it firms and strengthens their trust of me, right? And it makes it easier next time, right? It's not arbitrary, I'm totally nourishing the relationship when we do that. That's what's happening with Abraham right here. This is God's test. It's, do you trust me? Do you trust me? In some ways, the testing is really this. It's simply experiencing the goodness of the Father. That's what God's doing. But this circumstance is more intense than jumping off a bed or jumping into the pool. This is a test to experience God's goodness, and it does two things in this passage. The first thing it does is it goes right to the center and to the heart of who Abraham is. He says, Abraham, Abraham says, here I am, he says, take your son, hear the repetition, take your son, your only son, whom you love. Right? If you've been tracking with the story of Abraham, you know Isaac is at the center of it, Isaac coming is the consummation of it, Isaac is the promised son, he's the one through whom all God's promises are going to be fulfilled. But not only that, he's Abraham's everything. Your son, your only son, whom you love. In chapter 12, God first, that was God's first call to Abraham. He called Abraham away from his past. He said, leave your father, leave your mother, leave your land and follow me. 
In this passage, he's actually saying, and now leave your future and follow me. This is an intense call, saying, do you trust me? As it was his life, it was his everything. God's call goes right to the center of who we are as people. It goes right down to the heart of who we are. When God says, do you trust me? He doesn't deal with the peripheries of our lives. He goes to the heart. He goes to the center of who you are. And he's saying those things. Do you trust me with those? And it unnerves and distresses us. Right? Just like it does Abraham. All commentators remark on this. In verse 3, Abraham rose early in the morning, listened to the order of events, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac, and he cut the, word, cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went on to the place which God had told him. Now this is what's interesting. This is one of the small details, but all the commentators talk about it. Is this. He makes all the preparations, packs, gets the donkey ready to go, and then goes and cuts wood. Goes and does a, lo- a laborious, long, kind of time-consuming task. And what the commentators are saying is the order of events demonstrates that he's out of his mind right now. He's completely undone with what's going on. He doesn't know what to do. And it remind, reminded me of the first time we had our first episode of Stitches at home. Catherine fell and cracked her forehead, uh, just opened up her forehead and had to get stitches. And there was so much blood and Elizabeth and I panicked. And I grabbed Catherine. We were outside and it was obviously we needed to go to the emergency room. I just grabbed Catherine and started running around inside the house and then ran upstairs in the house. And Elizabeth's like, what are you doing? And I was standing in the girls' like guest bathroom upstairs. She was like, what are you doing with Catherine up there? I lost control, literally. I didn't know what to do. The course of action was clear. Go to the emergency room, and Elizabeth was just watching me run around the house, not knowing what to do with this kid. That's what Abraham's doing right here. He's lost control. He doesn't know what to do. God goes right to the center of who we are. God goes to the place that you know He goes to this place because if He touches on it, or the prospect of Him touching on it, makes your heart race. That this part of my life, this thing so central to who I am, you're saying, you want to go there? God's saying, I want that. I'm going to take that. God is going to the very last thing that you think He would never deal with, the last thing that you hope He doesn't deal with, the thing you're terrified that He has to deal with. And this is what He does, this is what Jesus does in the New Testament when He deals with this guy called the rich young ruler. The guy says, what must I do to be saved? And after back and forth, Jesus finally says, this is what you must do to be saved. Sell everything that you have and follow me. Now, is that an exhortation for all of us? No. What he's doing is, who's this man? He's the rich young ruler. He's going right to the heart of his identity. And he's saying the thing that is at the center of who you are, that defines you, that is your significance and your purpose, you have to let go of that. You're never dealing with the God of the Bible if all that he demands from you is easy and casual and all it takes to appease him is simply tweaking your schedule a little bit. You're not dealing with the God of the Bible if that's all it takes. If that's all, then you're not doing business with the real God. We want God to stay on the periphery and he's never going to be content to rest there. He's going to be painfully, deeply, unnervingly intrusive. And he's going to do nothing less than what any other God demands. 
He's demanding everything, Abraham's everything, his identity, his hope, his significance. And this might seem foreign to us, and this is the point I kind of want to make here for a brief moment, is that this, if the God of Scripture is not demanding your everything, something else will. And by the, when I say another God will, I mean little g God, another idol, a false God, another hope. If God doesn't demand your everything, something else in your life actually will. Bob Dylan, you all might have heard this lyric before he says this. Um, in one of his songs, he, he sings a song about how everybody serves somebody. Right? Meaning at the end of the day, everybody, regardless of who you are, what you think about Jesus and Christianity, is religious. And by religious, he means this. We all serve something at the end of the day. We all have a God, we all have an idol that we wrap our life and wrap our significance into the thing upon which we build our whole life, hoping that in so doing we can finally find meaning, right? We can finally find a sense of weightiness, that we're sufficient, that we're fulfilled, that we're significant. This is the human condition. This is the human experience. It's written into our, va- it's, it's, it's written into our very being. It's in our DNA. We were made for something, right? We need something to give us significance and weightiness. And so we... We latch on to these idols or these false gods, these other kind of things. And we think, if I pour myself into that, I can find that significance. I can find that weightiness. I can find that sense of rightness in the world, right? Uh, In the movie Chariots of Fire, one of the characters in this talks about his track career in competing in the Olympics. And he says, what's about to happen is this. I'm going to look down a corridor that's four feet wide and 100 meters long. And I've got four lonely seconds to justify my existence. Everybody in here is looking down a corridor that's the width of your life and the length of your life. And you're asking yourself every day during midterms, when you're looking at your long-term plans, whatever it is, you're asking yourself at the end of the day, will I be able to equip myself well in this? Will I be able to justify my existence? Will I be able to reach some modicum of achievement? So maybe it's achievement, right? Maybe that's the idol, maybe that's the false god. Um, to make a name, to have an impact, right? It could be love or romance, right? We, want, we, we need relationship, you know? And so we want to get lost in romantic love, right? This is, this is the bane of, like, the romantic comedy film industry is that they create all these terrible, terrible movies and feed on the fact that we all think if we have a story like that, we'll finally be happy, Right? But nobody in no relationship can ever bear the weight of being our God, right? It can be achievement, it can be relationships, it can be uh, approval and acclaim. We want someone to recognize us. So maybe it's not romance in terms of relationships that way, but maybe it's just the public perception of you. We want to be recognized. This is why, right, I do this all the time. We subtly advertise our brilliance all the time. Because we want to put things out there that demonstrate like, do you know what I am? Do you know what I know? Do you know what I'm capable of? Will you recognize it? So I can feel better about who I am. So I can feel significant. Right? It can be a lot of things. We deify all kinds of things. We're very complex in, what we, in the way that we can do it. And we ask them to play the role of God in our life. And in so doing, all of those things demand the same thing. Sacrifice. This is actually the language that we use when we talk about pursuing all of those dreams, all of those gods, right? Sacrifice. You give things up, right? Y'all are at Stanford. 
y'all sacrifice things to come here because I've worked, I, I've attended one SEC school and worked at two other SEC schools. Do you know what's awesome about SEC schools? They're awesome. People have a great time all the time. They hardly ever do schoolwork. Everybody has a ton of friends. All your fears that they're having that experience are true. You're like, no, they're not really like partying all the time and making a ton of friends and doing a lot of fun stuff. Yeah, they really are. Now, they sacrifice some things to do that, right? They sacrifice kind of certain levels of effort. And they said, listen, you know, our God, to some degree, is leisure and comfort. And so they said, you know what? I'm willing to sacrifice the levels of effort y'all are willing to put in in order to enjoy that. And y'all sacrifice the fun, right? They're having it at the SEC schools because something else meant more to you here. I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but I'm saying recognize this. The things you value, the things that are important to you, all demand sacrifice. And the only reason we're not completely given over to one thing is because we have so many that we serve. And you can see sometimes in, one people, in, in people's life, maybe it's happening in your life, where one thing does actually become all-consuming so that you actually end up sacrificing everything. You've seen this probably in dating relationships, right? Where somebody's finally started dating, and then all of a sudden all their friendships fade, maybe even their grades fade, all the other gods that they were serving that demanded sacrifices begin to fall by the wayside, and they're willing to put all of those things to death, right? To sacrifice them all for the sake of this one thing they finally have. But for the most part, we have numerous gods that we're serving, and they're all demanding mild levels of sacrifice. So this is what we find. We find our life frantic, running to one god to make him happy, right? Midterm season, and we're sacrificing all these other things. When that's over, we're running back to another God to make Him happy, our, our level of fitness or our social acceptance or how much fun we're having, the comfort we have, the leisure we have, whatever it is. And so we're frantic. We're running back and forth to all these idols and we're sacrificing things all the time. We're trying to manage this balance. And we're killing ourselves, right? We're killing ourselves. All these gods are demanding exactly what God does right here. They're demanding sacrifice, that you give up your life Right? We're deteriorating as people with this anxiety. Literally, these things are taking our life from us. It's dehumanizing. Right? Here's what's happening for Abraham. The one true God is demanding the same thing. A sacrifice. Giving up everything in your life and the thing most central in your life, your son. Abraham, and this is why all gods demand sacrifice, is because we haven't measured up in any of their perspectives. This is why the achievement God still demands sacrifice tomorrow. It's because you still haven't measured up. You might even have a 4.0 or if there's a GPA over 4.0, which is obnoxious, y'all people that have that kind of stuff. But (coughs) even so, you know that tomorrow you actually still haven't measured up. You still have more work to do. That God still demands more. You're still not there. So it continues to demand sacrifice, right? Abraham hasn't measured up to the one true God. The story of everything beforehand is frustrating in the ways that he's been unfaithful, in the ways he's sinned against people around him, sinned against God. He's been faithless. And God's saying what every God always says, because of that you must make sacrifice. And because your sin is so great, and because I am the greatest God, your sacrifice is the thing at the center of who you are, your son. So before we move on, just a brief point of application is this. This means you have to ask your que- the question of, and what do you find your significance? 
you're grasping at something. You're grasping at a lot of different things. We all are. You're looking down the corridor of your life and you're asking yourself, will I justify myself? What are the things that answer that question for you? How am I going to justify myself? And if you're not sure, look at the areas of embarrassment and shame in your life. Because embarrassment and shame reveal your gods. They reveal the things we worship, the things that we cling to for value and worth. It can be a number of things. We're very complex. And here's the next kind of point. Can you be honest that in your desire to find life in that thing, that in fact it is actually life-taking? That whatever it is you're finding your life in, that you're giving your life over, that you're literally sacrificing in order to appease, can you be honest and recognize that actually it's life-taking? You're disintegrating as a person the more and more you give yourself over to it. So here's Abraham, the one true God's demanding a sacrifice. And he's going to the depths of who he is, deep into his heart, and God says, I want that. And this is what happens. Abraham, here, in Hebrews actually 11.18, we're actually told that Abraham probably thought that God was just going to resurrect Isaac. He starts to conjure these plans. I don't know what's going to happen right here but maybe God's just going to bring Isaac back to life. In verse 5, it doesn't show up in the text that you have, but he says, I and the boy will go over there and worship, and the verb come again to you is actually plural. He's actually saying, me and the boy, we will go over there and worship, and we will come back to you. Something in Abraham's mind is saying like, I'm going to do this, but I still think Isaac's coming back, and I don't know how. Abraham... um, obeys without knowing the full plan of God, wondering about it. Clearly, Abraham, what Abraham thought was going to happen didn't happen. But he obeyed without God laying out all of his plans, right, and how it was going to work. And that's a reminder to us that God's not always going to tell you, in fact, he's very rarely going to reveal to you what's going to happen for you if you follow him. And in fact, if your willingness to follow him is contingent on God, show me how everything in my life is going to be mapped out and taken care of if I follow you, then you don't trust Him. Because all of a sudden you said, I don't trust you. Prove it to me. And I'll trust the map you show me. But I can't trust you, God. And so the story's unfolding, right? Here's Abraham, unnerved, walking away. It's a three-day walk, right? And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son. He took it in his hand, the fire and the knife, and they went with them together. And Isaac says to his son, my father, and he said, here I am, son. I see the fire in the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? The Bible is a good storytelling device. You feel the story unfold and you feel the tension rising. Like how does a father relate to a son in this context, right? The tension of this demand for sacrifice, the tension of a father. Abraham's looking at his son Isaac, trying to field that question, right? The tension about who this God is that we've become acquainted with, that Abraham's become acquainted with at some point. Can, can this kind of God demand this? This tension. The, can I even get on board with this kind of God? Right? When you read this story, can this really be a God that's good? Right? A God of love. And this is the high point of the tension. Right here. 
Abraham lifts his hand, and at that point, when Abraham lifts his hand, God sees deeply into Abraham's heart, doesn't he? He sees a man that trusts God. When it's scary, when it's fearful, when it doesn't make sense, when it completely unnerves him as a person, the allegiance of Abraham's heart is finally displayed. And the angel of the Lord calls to him and stops him, right? Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He says, don't lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. He stops him. But he doesn't stop the sacrifice. He stops the sacrifice of Isaac, but the sacrifice still has to happen. And God provides a substitute. God spares Isaac by providing an animal to die in his place. And this... Y'all know, this is the heart of Christianity right here. This is the center of it all. This is what distinguishes God from every other religion, from every other false idol that we might pursue, from every other dream that you might give your life over to. God is demanding Abraham's life, just like every idol is demanding your life. His firstborn son was his life. A burnt offering is actually something very specific. It's an atonement offering. It's actually talked about later in Leviticus 1 more in depth when God institutes the temple system. A burnt offering is a payment to a deity for sin. Abraham knows what this is. It's restitution for all the things we read about Abraham earlier in this passage. Abraham's got to give his life, his everything, in order to make payment on all of his unfaithfulness, his inadequacy, the fact that he never measured up. And the mountain on which Abraham stood, we're actually told, is called Mount Moriah. And then if you turn to Second Chronicles 3.1, that mountain shows up again when Solomon begins to build the temple in Jerusalem. It's built right here. And all of the ritual sacrifice in the Old Testament takes place actually right where Abraham's altar is. And it was at this mountaintop experience and at this moment that Abraham sees a ram that he's caught in the bushes and a substitute sacrifice is given. Something that dies in the place of his son. You know, all of this prefigures and points forward to the once and for all sacrifice of the real sacrificial lamb, Jesus, the one who will give his life in place of God's people. God actually gives up his only son his son Jesus, the son whom he loved, so that Abram wouldn't have to give up his son, just his life. Jesus' blood was poured out and his life was given so that our life wouldn't have to be given. I've used this language, we've all used this language, we've talked about Christian mountaintop experiences. Mountaintop experiences in the Bible, they're not fun, they're terrifying. Go throughout Scripture. Every time a Christian goes to the top of a mountain to do business with God, it is terrifying and beautiful, and you don't kind of want to really go back. People actually talk about how they want to die when they have mountaintop experiences. This is Moses' encounter on his mountain, right? This is John's encounter, right? They're terrified. This is a mountaintop experience. In this mountaintop experience, Abraham is completely undone. He becomes completely aware of the fact that he has to give up everything to be with this God. Just like any God, this God has said, you don't measure up and it demands your all in order to be made right with me. And at this mountaintop experience, <clears throat> at the last second, God provides a substitute. This is Jesus. Where the tension 
of this passage of this God who demands a sacrifice that seems so barbaric, and yet this God of love that we think we encounter in Scripture, the tension of the Bible, everywhere the tension you feel in the Bible always finds its consummation and its agreement and its coming together in the person of Jesus. The sacrifice doesn't stop, but there's a substitute. And the God of judgment, and the God that demands much, and the God who loves, are found out to be the same God, the manifested in the person of Jesus. The tension in the Bible is resolved in Jesus. This is what John says, this is what Jesus says in the book of John. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Isn't that interesting? He's actually upset with them for this. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me. And I say that for this reason. Because what's happening in Genesis 22 is what's happening whenever we encounter all of Scripture. What God is aiming for when we encounter the stories of Scripture is not inspiration, it's not information, and it's not instruction. If the Bible is inspiration, it's really frustrating inspiration a lot of times, right? If the Bible is information, it's really tedious information a lot of times. And if it's instruction, if it's simply instruction, it's really annoying, incomprehensible instruction a lot of times. It has elements of those things in it, but those are not primarily what it is. God's Word is never merely those things. The primary purpose of God's words and His actions is that you meet and experience Jesus. Scripture is a personal introduction. It's not information or inspiration or instruction. It is personal introduction. And the introduction of God is the person of Jesus. This is God saying here to Abraham and throughout all of Scripture, do you know the kind of God that I am? I'm the kind of God that doesn't demand life, but gives His own life that you can live and you can have life abundantly. And this is the story, this is the encounter that goes back to the very beginning point. Following Jesus is not an effort issue. It's not an effort issue. It's a trust issue. It's a respect issue. And God is saying here in this passage, do you know who I am? Do you see that I'm the kind of God that you can trust? Do you see I'm the God that gives life and doesn't take it? Have you seen my love for you? Have you seen the life of Abraham leading up to this? And the fact that I make sacrifice and I give life for that kind of God. God is not in the business of transforming or working into people's lives or changing you by fear or by pressure or by intimidation or by getting you to put forth more effort. None of those are His tools. He's in the business of transforming us by bringing us to Jesus, by bringing us to the cross, by allowing us to meet the God who gives life instead of all the other gods that take it. Abraham's everything was demanded of him. And God provided a substitute. If you're skeptical or you're processing Christianity and you're still wondering, you'll have and maybe feel the reasonable question, why blood? Why does death have to take place? Right? Why can't God just forgive us? Why can't He just kind of wipe it clean? Why do people have to die? Why does somebody have to die for us to reconnect with God? It goes back to the narrative we're talking about in this story. Every God demands a sacrifice because we fall short of every other God's ideal, right? Every false God demands that we give our life in order to appease Him. And there's only one possible way to avoid giving up your life in order to appease this God or any God. The only way a God wouldn't demand your life 
as if you're forgiven of a shortcoming. Right? This is the problem. Forgiveness is not free. Forgiveness is absolutely not free. To fall short is simply to fall short of your obligations, to, to fail to be the type of person that you were supposed to be, that you wanted to be, to acquit yourself well, to justify yourself down the corridor of your life. Right? And sin always incurs a debt. That's why we always feel like we have to keep giving more because we still haven't appeased our idols. Right? You're keenly aware of a debt. Forgiveness is the wiping away of a debt and being freed from the debt and erasing it. But this is the key. It absolutely is costly. It's free for the forgiven. But it's costly for the forgiver. When we were in South Carolina, the first week we were there, this poor old lady backed over our mailbox in our front yard. And she drove off. And her neighbor gave us her contact information. And there was a moment right there, right? She's old. She's like 95. She's senile. She doesn't even know she drove over her mailbox. I can forgive her. Or I can contact her and pursue retribution, right? Get her to pay me back, cut me a check, right? We forgave her. It didn't cost very much. But forgiving her cost me $50. It was free for her, but it came out of my checkbook. Forgiveness is not free. It's free for the forgiven, but it's not free for the forgiver. There's no such thing as forgiveness that doesn't cost the forgiver. So what's happening here is we're being taught about Jesus, the substitute. This is it. This is the crux of Christianity. This is the center of the story. This is everything. This is the story of the one God, the one true God, that does something that none of our other false gods do. He's the God that demands a sacrifice just like all other false gods, but He's the God that actually gives us a substitute to pay when we couldn't pay. And what we're aiming for in RUF is this. This is, this is the goal of RUF is for you to meet Jesus and to see what He's like. That's, that's the goal at the end of the day. The goal for Christians and for non-Christians alike. This is what's not going to happen in We're never going to give you a tidy formula for getting your life together, which is what everybody desperately wants, right? A tidy formula for getting your life together. Be suspect of anybody that gives you that. Life is messy. None of the formulas work for very long. They work for a little while. But what we hope to give you is what God gives you in Scripture, the person of Jesus. And so what that means for Christians tonight is this. Stop tweaking your life. Stop recommitting and re-promising. Stop obsessing and being a spiritual navel-gazer, trying and working and thinking that, key is the, more, that the key is just is more effort. Stop all that stuff. You're never going to get there. The reason we don't sing songs in RUF that have I will always in them is because I don't always. And I don't want to lie when I'm singing to God. Because you won't always. And so stop thinking that if you try harder, you will always. God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. When we were His enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son. That's why, here's the application for every sermon at RUF for the next, for however long you're here. The application is this. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The application is, behold, this is who Jesus is, and this is what He's like. And we will never exhaust exploring the beauties of what He's like. And so we're going to present Him to ourselves and to, to you and to campus over and over and over again in the myriad ways that He comes to us. 
but the application is not. Here are the seven things to get your life in order to date better, to find the right person, to do well in school. The application is this. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And do you see your God's... Do you see that they're taking away your life? Do you see that there's a one true God whom we owe everything to, but instead He gives His life for us? Let's pray.